for a, an Italian driver to become a Ferrari driver, uh, it's, it's the dream of the life. My life changed completely. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week is a driver who had his day of days at the French Grand Prix back in 1990. He finished second in the underdog Leighton House March, having led local hero Alain Prost for much of the race. So as the F1 circus decamps to the very same Paul Ricard circuit this week, it seems like the perfect time to relive it with my guest, Ivan Capelli. Ivan was a brilliantly fast racing driver. He dominated the junior categories of the sport, becoming a champion in Formula 3 and Formula 3000. And he achieved amazing feats in Formula 1 as well. Predominantly, he drove for small, low-budget teams, taking three podiums. And what should have been the highlight of his Formula 1 career, when he raced for Ferrari, turned out to be his biggest nightmare. The F92A was very uncompetitive, and Ivan didn't see out the 1992 season with the team. He's no longer involved in F1, but Ivan's still incredibly passionate about it, and he remains a very astute observer of the sport. In this chat, he's very open about the highs and lows of his career, and gives incredible insights into what it was like to work with the likes of Ken Tyrrell, Adrian Newey, and Jean Alesi. Ivan is one of the most engaging characters you can be lucky enough to meet. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Ivan, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. How are you? What's going on? Well, uh, I'm now in, in Switzerland since two years. I'm actually following a different project that is uh, far away from the motorsport because I'm involved in a factory that is producing instrumental for medical stuff, basically for uh, the blood uh, group grouping. And uh, I'm managing a factory with uh, 40 people. So uh, I'm involved in this new project that is quite interesting, even if obviously I'm still following uh, uh, Formula One, uh, motorbikes, uh, rally, everything, because uh, uh, I miss a lot. I'm missing a lot uh, anyway, the, the, the paddock. Well, I hope you're going to enjoy talking about Formula One <laughs> with us. This weekend is the French Grand Prix. So I thought, where's a good place to start with, Ivan? Why don't we talk about the 1990 French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard? You finished second, having led Alain Prost for much of the race. And now the two leaders. Prost takes over to Penny still. And Prost will be challenging as they go to the double right hand. And I'm sure he's going to go for the inside. He has, and Frost has got done it. Alan Frost has gone through. Third, they third, Mr. Penny. Alan Frost wins the French Grand Prix exultantly in front of his home crowd on his home circuit. And look at Capelli coasting across the line with Senna right behind him. Would you say that was your greatest race? Yeah, absolutely. It was the greatest race uh, of uh, Leighton House team. And it was also my sliding doors, probably. Because uh, with the second place, uh, we could manage to, uh, to realize the best results of the season. But probably I missed my only victory in Formula One. That could change completely my, my career, maybe. I don't know. But uh, it was uh, a crucial time in, in 1990. 
probably, yeah. I must say that it was my sliding doors of my life, yes. Let's talk about the performance of the car first. We'll come on to the other opportunities in a bit. But were you surprised by the pace of the car that weekend? Because people may not know that you hadn't qualified for the previous race. Yeah, in Mexico, we, we, we came home uh, without racing. And that was uh, really painful. <laughs> and then in Porricar, we found uh, a completely different situation with a very flat uh, circuit in comparison to Mexico. Our car was then responding pretty well with the downforce. We also managed to make, uh, we made a, 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 a little change in the diffuser at the back, copying a little bit the, the diffuser of the Williams team. And with uh, Gustav Brunner, who was the technical director of the team at the time, we managed to start from Friday to work to, to, to actually to find a solution and a setup not to change the tires during the race. And we focused on that since uh, Friday morning. Even in the, on, on, on the starting grid, I was fighting with, uh, uh, with Gustav because he was uh, pushing me to, to change a little bit uh, uh, the front wing again, the aero balance. And then we managed to split the aero balance in two pieces, the, in, the outside for him and the inside for me. Uh, and then we have, <laughs> no, no, this, it's true, it's true. And then we start like this. I mean, knowing that we were focusing on uh, expecting the others to, to stop and to change the tires and then to start to push. For this reason, we had this kind of race because uh, we, we had a completely different strategy. Why were you so convinced that not stopping was the way forward? Because we found uh, a very good balance, because we managed to approach a senior corner, for example, lifting up, up a little bit the gas throttle and not going through throttle completely in the senior corner and to save a lot of uh, the left tires. And as well in Le Bosset, in the double right corner after senior, and because basically we found a very, uh, very good aero balance with the downforce and the very little wings that we used at the rear. So the car was very quick on the straight and not uh, putting so much pressure on, on the tires. Actually worked uh, very, very well because uh, in, uh, in the mid part of the race, we were first and second with uh, Morris uh, uh, fighting with, uh, with Alain and it was uh, a good, uh, good, good situation for the team, obviously. Then Morris had a problem with the engine. And I saw this car that was uh, obviously parked uh, uh, on, the, on the straight line with the smoke coming out from the cover engine. And uh, so I was really worried about my engine, obviously. And Prost, uh, then he could uh, caught me very, very, let's say, small time. I mean, he was uh, after a few laps, he was just behind me. And he started to try to overtake me in front, at the end of the straight line. But let's say mid-race, over a, a curb, I lost my uh, right mirrors. So I couldn't see him. So when you, uh, all the time that he was actually trying to overtake me, I was closing the door. And, <laughs> and then he was afraid because he was obviously fighting for the championship. The points for him was more important than me. For this reason, he was... Uh, uh, not uh, not trying to overtake me there anymore. And then he overtook me just uh, to left to the end when I had the engine problem. He must have been thinking, this guy Capelli is a bit aggressive. Yes, a lot. <laughs> I think so. I think so, yes. So what did Alain say to you on the podium? 
Uh, not much, actually. He was uh, obviously very happy because uh, he scored uh, a win and at the same time uh, the hundredth wins for Ferrari in the history. So he was uh, very proud of this, obviously. And uh, he was just uh, astonished by our performance because he remembered very well as that we were not qualified in Mexico. But it was a, a nice guy. I mean, a nice moment having uh, or being on the, ro- on, the, on the rostrum with Alan Prost and uh, Ayrton in the third place. Fantastic. Now, you say it was your sliding doors moment. Even finishing second... Did any opportunities present themselves immediately after that? Uh, Not really, actually. Can I put it to you that the reason Flavio Briatore got in touch with you after Alessandro Nanini injured himself in that helicopter accident was because of that performance? Is that fair? We might say that uh, it's like that, this this story. Yes, because uh, it's true that in 1988... uh, I scored the second position in Portugal, uh, again with uh, Alain uh, in front who won the race, and third was uh, Thierry Butsen. But uh, then in 1989, we had a very critical season because the car was not really perform- performing and not even closer to the 1988. Uh, so in 1990, we were still fighting a lot and and and. and and having problem because, as we said, uh, we had uh, a non-qualified in, in in Mexico the race before. So that that performance probably put me again on the on the table of Briatore uh, and and or in, in, in his list, let's say, of drivers that uh, could manage to to join the Benetton team. While we're talking about Flavio, can you tell us the story? What happened? with that Benetton seat at the end of 1990. So Nanini injures himself. And how soon after that is Briatore on the telephone to you? Well, I was uh, I was actually in my parents' house. And uh, I arrived, actually, at my parents' house. And my mom said immediately, immediately to me that uh, she listened on, on, on the TV that uh, Alessandro had uh, an accident. And I said to her, look, there are no tests today. There is, how can Alessandro had an accident? I don't know, it's an helicopter accident. And then I immediately, I switched on the, the, the television and I saw and I followed all the news. And then this was uh, around four o'clock, uh, something like that, three, four o'clock in the afternoon. At seven, seven o'clock, uh, or even early, probably 6.30, I was still in my parents' house. I received a phone call directly there from uh, Briatore. And uh, the first thing that I asked to, to Briatore was, uh, how is Alessandro? Uh, how is his condition? And he told me, I am in the car, I'm going to the hospital, uh, and I will discover this in, uh, in a few moments and so on. But uh, what are you doing for the Japan Grand Prix? And I said, what do you, what do you mean? He said, would you like to drive for us? I said, look, but uh, you don't know even how is uh, Alessandro. And then he said to me, Alessandro is not going to, to drive, obviously, but uh, would you like to drive or not? And he said, look, I said just uh, a week ago to Akira Kagi that I will continue in 1991 for the later now of the season. And I, and I give my, I give my, my words to, to Akira Kagi. And then he said, so what's your decision? I say, look, at the moment, I, I have to say that I cannot drive because I have to talk to Akira Kagi or anyway. 
I have to find out how is the situation and so on. And then he didn't say a lot. I mean, he just uh, closed the communication and, and they found out that somebody else uh, joined the team, the Benetton team in Suzuka. That was uh, Moreno, Roberto, Roberto Moreno. So Flavio wanted an answer from you in that same phone call. Absolutely. He didn't give me any, any chance to say, look, uh, uh, maybe we can talk tomorrow or... He was uh, pushing me really to to have uh, an answer immediately. You mentioned Akira Akagi, who was the money man behind March and, and did so much for your career. We'll come on to him in a minute. But do you regret not taking that Benetton seat? Because, of course, Moreno took it. He finished on the podium in Japan. He then got the Benetton ride for the whole of 91 or until Schumacher came along. But it could have been different for you, couldn't it? Oh, yes. Looking at the, at the history, it could have been completely different. That's for sure. But as I said uh, uh, before, uh, in my entire, entire life, when I gave my words, I gave my words. I mean, I, I'm strict to that. So uh, I said to Akira Kagi in Monza, when we were racing, obviously Monza was a sort of a home race for everybody because we had uh, a lot of Italian sponsors, uh, uh, a lot of friends uh, connected to Leighton House uh, and Akira Kagi and so on. So when he asked me in, uh, in Monza, would you like to continue with us? I said, look, yes, ab- absolutely. So I couldn't, I couldn't change my, my words. Well done, you. You raced for March Leighton House for five years. Which was the best car you drove? For sure, the 1998, because uh, the first car that uh, Adrian Newey uh, designed completely from, from, from zero. And uh, an, in, an innovative car, innovative idea. The front wing has, still has uh, now some, uh, some shape that are connected to that, uh, that idea. And, uh, and probably the philosophy, how to building a car, going to the extreme in all the areas, especially the cockpit. I remember very well that. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I had uh, a 25 centimeter diameter for the steering wheel, 25 uh, hole in the monocoque, basically, uh, to went through with my legs. Uh, no footrest, because we didn't have a space in, in the pedals to have a footrest uh, on the left side. And uh, the first time that I tested the car in, in Imola, even if I had the test uh, in England with the mock-up in, in wood, where I could feel let's say comfortable inside the car. But in Imola, when I jumped for the first, in the, in the real car for the first time, I said to, to Adrian, look, Adrian, there is a, a little problem. And Adrian was there, said, tell me, what's the problem? I said, look, can you see the, the gear lever? I said, yes, I cannot take it. I cannot use it because it's actually in the, in the middle of my, <laughs> of my arm. I mean, how can I, can I take it? Uh, we're going to make uh, something different now. Let's, you have to stay in the, in the car. Then with a the mechanic, went back in the, in the garage and I could, I could hear, obviously, a funny noise, like a hammer that bang, 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 bang on the gear lever. And he came back with the gear lever, gear lever bent to the front and they put the gear lever back in the car and he said, can you grab it now? I say, yes, but, you know, it's not even uh, an easy position. I mean, it's very uncomfortable, but uh, don't worry. You're going to learn. Go out and then you can learn it, how to use it. 
And we went through all the season, and you can imagine how to, it was to drive this kind of car in Monte Carlo, for example. <laughs> but we went to, through, through all the season like that. Jackie Stewart drove that car, I think the following season. And I've seen what he said about it. And he said the car was undrivable because the cockpit was too small. And he, he talked about leg cramps and things like that. How did you do a, a Grand Prix distance being so uncomfortable? Because I was a 67 kilos. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't have a, a gram of fat, <laughs> actually. <laughs> and because I was uh, sitting basically on, on the monocoque without uh, a seat. <laughs> and in fact, uh, Maurice Gujumin had uh, even more problems than, than me because it was a little bit more, uh, let's say, larger than my size. And he had basically more problems. But as uh, Adrian said, then through the season, we could easily be used to the car and, uh, and use the car anywhere. Obviously, for a, for a driver so experienced like uh, Sir Jackie Stewart, jumping in in that car and, start, and pretending to drive it <laughs> like he probably was remembering <laughs> Is uh, is speed in Formula One? That's a good challenge. Yes. But did it affect your ability to drive it properly, particularly towards the end of a Grand Prix, because of fatigue? As I said, cramps. Oh yeah, yeah. We had uh, several Grand Prix where we had problem with the legs, uh, especially with the bumpy Grand Prix, uh, having the cockpit so close uh, to the to the steering wheel. I have all my uh, my knock in the, in, in the in the ends. They were completely bleeding because uh, I was actually in contact with the carbon in every corner, or even my uh, my arms. It was really difficult to, to drive that car. Uh, but I must say that uh, it was so enjoyable, so fast. Doesn't sound enjoyable. No, no, but <laughs> enjoyable meaning that uh, even if we had the one hundred. Uh, probably 100 horsepower less than the turbo because we were fighting against the turbo. We were able to manage to follow the other cars to be even more competitive. And this was uh, the, the, the boost that was pushing us to drive that car even in that condition. Adrian was clearly uncompromising. This is it, guys. Get on with it in terms of the cockpit. Oh, yeah. This is uh, uh, what he said to us. And... Uh, I remember very well then during a test at the end of the season in Vallelunga, in Rome, we were still complaining about the car, saying, look, Adrian, for the next car, next car please give us some, other, some more space around the steering wheel or near the gear lever or, or for the legs and so on. And he said, ah, you are always uh, complaining. Give me your clothing. Give me your drive suit, driving suits. Uh, and then he went to Mauricio, give me the, your helmets. And then he jumped in. Into, into the car, and he drove the car, the 1980. Obviously, very, very slowly. He did uh, a few laps, then he stopped and he said, you see, you saw, I could drive the car easily without any problem. Why you are so com you are complaining so much? <laughs> That's a great story. Very Adrian Newey. Look, what was he like to work with, Ivan? What, what impressed you about Adrian Newey? The fact that he's probably the real only real only genius that there is uh, in Formula One at the moment. I know that now Formula One is completely different. There are so many engineers. The staff is uh, hundreds or thousands of people uh, in comparison to, 
to 1988 and 1990s, basically. But Adrian was uh, the guy that could see that uh, in some moment he had the the idea that came in in his in all these uh, things that he was uh, seeing in around the car, and it's like it's really a, a genius because uh, for an engineer that uh, was that was able to win with uh, Williams, with uh, Mercedes, with Red Bull, showing that. Uh, all the places where he went, he had uh, the opportunity to to win races and to win championship. And he's still on and he's still on top after so many years. And did he race engineer you as well? Sometimes, not always, because you will always uh, one step back because uh, we had uh, two different race engineers in uh, in Leighton House, and he was coordinating more the the, the work. Remember that in in the nineties we were still. Uh, fighting against uh, things that now probably uh, are not more uh, a problem in Formula One, like uh, uh, overeating because we were uh, our radiators were too small or in some Grand Prix like uh, Brazil or in other places very hot where I could listen and everybody could listen, mechanics uh, in the garages working to reduce the, the, the body work and to open some uh, NACA, uh, uh, air duct or so on. I mean, now this kind of Formula One is not, is not anymore in the paddock. But in that time, sometimes you have to, to find solution at the circuit. And I've, I've heard some drivers say the joy of working with Adrian is that in him, you're with a man who wants to win as much as you do. Ferociously competitive. Yes, unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to to feel this kind, uh, obviously, uh, situation. Even if he was pushing us very hard, but I must say that in Leighton House, for a moment, we had the, the best combination. Combination that uh, several years after won some uh, championship because uh, I had Adrian and uh, Mario Ilian with the Ilmore. So we had uh, all the ingredients, let's say. Uh, we just uh, didn't match the right time. Before we move on from 1988, can you just describe that summer, particularly that string of races when you finished third, fifth and second in consecutive races? I mean, it must have been an incredible experience, particularly with a team that was so small. Yeah, it was very uh, a family atmosphere is what uh, I really liked in, in, in Leighton House team. Because uh, for the size, obviously, of, of the team members that at the time we were not so big like now, the opportunity to share dinners with the, uh, all, the, all the mechanics uh, or to have time even in the paddock to share some, uh, some moments. And uh, this pushed us, for example, in Japan, to be so relaxed and so, let's say, easy that we could manage really to nearly to score uh, an important result in Japan, despite the fact that we had a problem, an electrical problem that stopped the car. But we were the first car non-turbo leading uh, a Grand Prix after the turbo era, when I was fighting against uh, Ayrton and, and uh, Alain in, in Suzuka, 1988. And did you enjoy being the David, if you like, against the Goliath of, of Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost? Did you enjoy being 
the, the, the underdog. Yeah, I like very much to be the underdog, yes. <laughs> because obviously, there is, as we said, there is no pressure. You All the results that are arriving are, the, are welcome in any case. And sometimes you can really be even stronger in your mind because uh, you can push to the limit and uh, without risking anything and more important than the championship, like other drivers. What about offers? I'm going to keep talking about offers during our chat because that summer of 88, when you've had two podiums in three races, did the big teams not come knocking? I find it very hard to believe that they didn't. No, no, they didn't. Uh, I remember that um, Cesare Garibaldi was uh, at the time my manager that followed me from the Formula 3 in uh, 1982. He was uh, knowing, he knew obviously all the Formula 1 team manager. We had uh, a chat with uh, Frank Williams in the garage, but nothing, nothing serious obviously. And I didn't have the opportunity to jump, let's say, immediately to a top team. And obviously, I continued my, my career with Leighton House, even in 88 and 90. I didn't have any other opportunity, let's say. Okay, interesting. Disappointing too, because do you feel that you were at the height of your powers in that 88 season? When were you at your best? Uh, yes, we can say that around uh, 88 and 90 was the, probably the best, best moment uh, of my driving skill in Formula 1. When you were driving with the most confidence and absolutely, yeah, absolutely, getting the job done, you spent most of your career driving that distinctive. What do we call it? Miami Blue March, didn't you? And what people might not know is the fascinating story of how you came to race for them in the first place. It all goes back to Japan, right? Yeah, there is a a step before because I, I met Mr. Akagi in the Imola. Uh, when I was racing with the Formula 3000 in 1986. The year that you won the championship. Yes, yep. yes. because in 1985, uh, I, I competed in Formula 3000. I couldn't uh, participate to the start of the season because I was uh, actually in the army in Italy. <laughs> so I couldn't... National service. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, couldn't, I couldn't race uh, in a few races uh, in 1985. Then I jumped in into the championship when uh, other... Hang on, Ivan. Italy loves its racing drivers. There was no dispensation for you to go racing instead of the national service. That's incredible. The, for the first uh, four months was uh, impossible. And because I started in uh, January, I was able just to join the, the field on May, May, June. What kind of stuff did you do in the national service? We'll come back to your racing career in a minute. But what was it like? How hard was it? Uh, was uh, a normal, normal uh, national service. I mean, <laughs> despite the fact that I was uh, older than the other guy, so I had the people with me that had uh, 18 years old that was actually giving me instruction and I was uh, 22 years old, 23, 23. So that's the only, was the, the, the only problem. But what were you doing? Were you having to go and make a camp in the Dolomites or go marching? And, and... No, most of the time I spent my, my, my national service, most of the time in uh, La Spezia. It is near uh, in Liguria, near the sea, Genova, near Genova. And uh, I stayed there for four months. And that place was uh, a place where people that arrived spent one month to be prepared for the national service. 
And I didn't move. I stayed there for for four months. And because uh, the people that came couldn't use the basically gun or other things like that, I was always involved in uh, what we call the, the routine work when you when you have to to stay and, and and protect the area. Defense. I was spending all my time basically doing that. Obviously, hoping every day to open my mailbox to receive the letter that they had the dispensation to go to go and could you ring your racing team or find no, out no, what yeah. was, you could still stay in touch i was a, i was able to phone to my team in italy at the time we didn't have uh, the cellular phone obviously and i remember that i was collecting all the coins <laughs> to to use on the on the, on the uh, telephone, the public telephone, queuing with all the other people, obviously, waiting my my turn, and then with the coins to phone to my team and say, "Look, I'm still here. What are you doing? <laughs> Get me out!" And and what people sending you Auto Sprint and Gazetta della Sport just to keep in touch with what's going on. Yes, right? and uh, when I asked. I received my, let's say, dispensation because of uh, uh, my sporting career and so on. But I have to justify to the uh, office, to the military office, where I was racing. Because I had to point out during this weekend, I'm racing in uh, Vallelunga. In the other weekend, I'm racing in Dijon. And when I understood that uh, they just had to, to, to have a, a race, basically, in the weekend to give me the, the dispensation for the period, at least uh, three, four weeks. And then I had to come back for a few days to then to leave again. I was putting in the list uh, all kinds of races. I remember that in 85, I did also Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh. and uh, if, if I remember well, the Finland, uh, the Finland rally, because... <laughs> <laughs> I put it in the list because they were, not, they were not asking me, but are you actually going to Finland to do a, a rally? And I said, I'm doing this, this, and this, and this, and this. Ah, okay, okay. How many? One month of dispensation. You, you can go. <laughs> what a brilliant story. I love that. So that's national service. Sorry, we digress. But so um, Akagi-san. Yes. You've met him whilst doing Formula 3000. Tell me more about that story. I met Akarika Akarisan in Imola, 1986. I was racing basically with a white car because uh, we didn't have a, a lot of sponsors. Cesare Garibaldi was managing the team and the team was uh, Genoa Racing. And uh, I was introduced to Mr. Akagi by Yasukawa, that was the manager of the Bridgestone Motorsport Company in Europe. And he introduced me to Akagi-san and uh, because Akagi-san had a, a team, Formula 2 team in Japan. And unfortunately, the driver that was uh, competing in Japan had a, a road accident and he was killed in that road accident. So they were looking for a new driver. And uh, Mr. Yasukawa said to, to Akagi-san, why not a, a European? Why not choosing a, a European? Because uh, before me in Japan, just two drivers was uh, competing regularly in Formula 2. Jeff Atkinson and uh, the other was... Uh, ARL. ARL, ARL Connor. Yes, yeah. ARL. So I was joining 
a very small team, let's say. <laughs> and Akagi told me, look, I would like you to come in Japan to race for me and so on. And I said to him, look, obviously I have to race in, in, in Europe for the Formula 3000. I can come, but uh, I need some money because uh, we don't have a lot of sponsors. So why not uh, splitting the price money that I can provide with my performance and my results 60-40. 60 for you, 40 for me. And then we shake the hands in, in, the, in the middle of the paddock and he said, okay, come to Japan. Were you worried that people in Europe were going to forget about you racing in, on the other side of the world? No, 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 because I was, I was obviously coming back because I was uh, going to Japan and coming back to Europe because I was still, still competing in Formula 3000. Oh, so part of the deal was that you would continue in European Formula 3000? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. I just say to Akira, I'm not coming alone. I, will, I would like to have also Cesare Gariboldi with me, at least to support me in Japan. He said, no, no problem. You can come together. And I remember very well that uh, because we bought the ticket, Cesare, that was a very enthusiast and a big fan of, uh, of flights, I mean, he knew everybody around the world in all the airport and so on. He could manage to have a very low price ticket for uh, obviously economical. And uh, we, go, we went to the Japan like that in economic. When we arrived in Japan, immediately we realized that uh, the story was completely different because uh, I had uh, uh, the assistant of uh, Mr. Akagi, Minoru Yasukawa, same name that came to pick up me in the, at the airport. And uh, immediately we, we saw, you know, the Rolls Royce car that came to the airport to pick up us. And then uh, the phone inside the car and, and Minoru asking me, would you, would you like to phone to your mom and say that you're right? No, 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 no. If there is some cost, I don't want to, <laughs> to spend any money. So, I mean, this was the story. Very, very strange. We realized that behind the Akira Kagi, in that moment, uh, Akira was a really helpful uh, businessman and uh, he was a person who, who was a, he had a, a, a very, um, let's say, he did a, a step that probably put him on, on top of the list of all the businessmen in Japan because... What, the rich list? Because he realized he was an healthy man, as he said. A lot of money, but... Uh, it was difficult to enter into, you know, the high society or in some club, let's say. When he started to compete in Formula 2 and then in Formula 1, he was able to enter the, uh, this uh, club because he was uh, the only guy together with uh, Honda, Mr. Honda, to compete in Formula 1. So he put himself top level of, of situation. Having said that, when we arrived in Japan, the first race in Suzuka, I scored a uh, pole position and then a second place behind uh, the driver that is uh, probably the, the most well-known driver in, 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 uh, in Japan, that was not Nakajima. No, it was Nakajima, actually. <laughs> We're talking Satoru Nakajima. Satoru, Satoru Nakajima, yeah. yes. And uh, the second story that is uh, quite particular is that... Uh, when uh, we went to Akagi office uh, after the first race, he gave me an envelope, a closed envelope, with the money, the price money in already. 
cash. And uh, uh, I obviously, I took the, the, the envelope and we were talking about uh, the good race and so on, because the first four was uh, the first podium for Leighton Now's history and so on. And then I turned to Cesare and I said, look, I'm going to check the money that there, there is in, in the envelope. And Cesare told me, are you crazy? I mean, what are you doing? I'm not doing anything funny. I mean, just checking the money. So the, when I opened the, the envelope, even uh, Minoru Yashikawa was, uh, you know, uh, opening the eyes uh, and, and, and say to me, no, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then I start to count the money and I realized that Akagi gave me more money than the 40%. So I said to Mr. Akagi, look, this is wrong. This is your money, your part of the money, not my part of the money. And then from then, Mr. Akagi, obviously was la everybody were, were laughing and so on. And he gave me even more money to... <laughs> to come back to Italy and, and to race. And then after two races, we, we paint uh, even the car in, in Europe with the Miami blue color. And we managed to, to win the championship uh, in, in Europe and to score some other uh, good results in, in Japan. What an amazing story. How did you find Japan back then? Did you get very homesick? was the real Japan. When I say real, I mean, uh, without, uh, for example, the... The road instructions were still in, uh, in Japanese writing. Everything uh, to, to find a person who could uh, at least speak a little bit of English was very, very uh, difficult. It was difficult to manage how to set up the car, for example, because uh, we were used in, in, in Europe to work on the mechanical part of the car, obviously, with the front suspension, rear suspension, the aero kit and so on. In Japan, because they had uh, a very strong fight between uh, uh, tires manufacturer, Dunlop, Yokohama, Bridgestone, everybody were involved in Formula 2, what was called in Formula 2, because they used a, a six-cylinder engine, Yamaha and Honda, and they had a Yamaha engine. They were actually setting up the car with, with the tires. When I stopped for the first time, they say, look, I have some understeer in the car. I would like to change the spring at the front. No, 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 no. Wait a moment. They put the car up in the air and then they change four tires. They say, go out. Say, no, but they were like, no, 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 go out. They went, I, got, I went out with new tires and obviously the understeer became oversteer. <laughs> and I stopped. I said, look, now I have some oversteer. Okay, car up in the air, some other tires. So at the end of the day, I ask to the engineer, that, the Japanese engineer, look, I want to change, for, at least give me one chance to change just the spring. I don't want to change the tires, just the spring. And I remember very well that we had uh, a meeting all together. Myself, Cesare Gariboldi, Minoru Yasukawa, Akira Kagi, that went to this team, the chief engineer, the mechanics, I mean, all sitting on the same table, okay, having a tea, and uh, we had to share these decisions. What do you like to, to change them? But why? I said, look, because I have my driving style. I want to try to use these springs. So then when the day after we use these springs and we could, we could score the pole position in Suzuka, I remember that uh, Oshino. Yes, the driver, very famous Japanese driver. That's right. Very well known and, and, and very, very well respected at the time because it was a uh, a sort of legend in Japan. He came to our box, to our garage, 
And my engineer, looking at Shino coming to the box, he prepared already the, the technical uh, uh, paper. And then he gave immediately the paper to him to look our setup. And they went there and they closed the paper. What do you, what do you want? What, do you, what you are you doing? And Mr. Shino is, is asking me the setup. Ah, so let him, let him try what he wants to do with his setup, not to, to copy our setup. What a fascinating insight into the racing scene in Japan at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, for this reason, probably in that, that time, a lot of Japanese drivers who tried to join Formula One or other categories had some, uh, some problem to understand that when you are in a circuit, you are fighting and you don't have to share information. Despite the fact that they have an history that you know better than me with the samurai, with all this, uh, you know, uh, philosophy, but for some reason they were not uh, competitive at the time. Was Akagi-san the most instrumental figure in your whole career? Where would you have been in Formula One without him? Uh, yes, Akagi uh, sponsored me for five years, as you said, in Leyton House. He gave me the opportunity really to join my my dream. But uh, um, there is another person that actually pushed me and then gave me the opportunity, Ken Tyrrell. Because uh, when I was racing in Donington at the last race in F3000 in 1985, my mechanics had a problem in preparing the car, basically. They put uh, a gear uh, in the gearbox in in the wrong position and, and, and we had a we, did, we couldn't actually uh, be able to participate in the qualifying. So I was last on the grid. And I remember that uh, we had to go to all the teams to have, uh, you know, the paper signed to allow us to start, even if uh, we didn't have the time uh, and so on. So it was uh, at the end of the, of the field. I remember that in Donington, in that race, we had uh, the special race that you have in England, the drizzling, you know, the drizzle, yeah? <laughs> Very funny because uh, it's raining, but it's not raining. <laughs> and I say to, to Cesare, we are last. What we can lose? We can try something different. And they said, and Cesare told me, okay, let's put uh, a few degrees on the front uh, wing and the rear wing. And let's put on the, on the car the softest uh, slicks tires while the others are, are starting with the intermediate. And, and see what uh, what's going what happened what, what what is going on and I was able to start last and to finish the third in front of Ken Tyrrell, who came after the race Cesare I was I remember very well that it was inside our very small truck because we had a, a Fiat Lupetto from the 60s we didn't have a lot of money eh? <laughs> CX, uh, Fiat Lupetto is a truck that basically is uh, very short, but very tall. <laughs> anyway, I was inside this, this truck, just changing. And, and, and uh, Cesare opened the door and he said, look, come, come, come. There is someone that uh, wants to meet you. And I was really just on my underpants, nothing else. And he said, look, come. I said, but look, look, can you see how I am? Don't worry, come. So I, I, I took uh, something just to, <laughs> to cover me. <laughs> And I went to the, to the door, and you remember that uh, 
Mr. Thierry was very, very tall, obviously. And uh, when I opened the door, Mr. Thierry was actually looking me in the eyes, basically, because uh, he was so tall that... Uh, but uh, apart that, he said to me, look, you, have a, you did a very good job today and so on. We talk just for a few minutes, not, a, not all. And he didn't say anything about the possibility or something like that. And when uh, Ken Tyrrell, he leave, I said to, to Cesare, but so w- what's going on now? And he said, don't worry, something will happen in the future. We don't know what, when, but be sure that something will arrive. Why was Cesare so sure of that? Eh, because he saw probably Tyrrell, how he was talking to me. He probably had also the chance to talk to Tyrrell in privacy without me and so on. And after three weeks, I remember that uh, I was still uh, uh, living in my parents' house and uh, my mom received a, a phone call with uh, someone obviously talking in English and she was uh, shouting in the house, uh, there is someone talking English, I cannot understand, you have to answer. <laughs> so <laughs> I answered to the phone and I said, okay, I'm, I'm Ivan Capelli, who's talking? And on the other side, obviously, Mr. Tiro said, I'm Ken Tiro. And I said to him, uh, ah, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, you are Ken Tiro. Who you are? Okay, come on, who you are? Because a lot of friends of mine in that period, they were making joking jokes to me on the phone, saying, I'm Licky Lauda, I'm something. <laughs> and uh, when uh, Tiro said to me, look, I'm really Ken Tiro, then I understood that... Uh, uh, the opportunity could arrive. He said to me, would you like to race for us in the European Grand Prix in Brandsach? And I said to him, look, first of all, I would like to thank you for this opportunity, but uh, I don't have money. I cannot bring you millions of dollars or thousands of dollars. I don't have a, a sponsor. No, don't worry, don't worry. The car is, uh, is paid. I mean, you don't have to bring any money. And I said, look, okay, but... Uh, I would like to try the car because obviously, you know, I'm driving a form of 3000, but uh, a turbo car because they, at the time they were racing with the six cylinder Renault engine. And he told me, look, Renault is not providing us any engine. We don't have a, any opportunity to try to test the car. And I say, okay, okay. Then I, I know Bransach, but just the small circuit. I never compete in the uh, long circuit. I did a test with the Brabham uh, BT. 53 with uh, Stirling Moss, uh, Pierluigi Martini in, in 84 in the small circuit. But I would like to try, maybe you can organize a Formula 3 test to understand the circuit, to the, the, the long one. And he said, look, we don't have money also to provide this test for you. Would you like to come or not? And I said, yes, I'm coming to, to, to race. Okay. So again, I took a flight to go to England without Cesare because we didn't have the money for Cesare to come. So I was completely alone. I arrived in uh, London Heathrow and I took a bus. I'm not joking. I took a bus to go to Bransach. And then I entered into the paddock with my bag and the helmets inside and the overall, obviously. Then on Wednesday, I did the seat in the garage typical work that with the mechanics and so on. And then around uh, 6 o'clock, 
Mr. Tyrell was uh, looking at me that I was still there. I was not going to the, to the hotel. So he came to me and said, well, what are you doing here? Go to, to the hotel. You don't have to do anything, anything else. And I said to him, look, uh, yes, I would like to go, but uh, uh, I don't have a car. And he said, what? He said, yes, Mr. Tyrell, sorry, but uh, you know, you know someone that is going to the hotel that uh, can give me a lift? So he called Martin Brandl, that was uh, my teammate, and he said to Martin, Martin, Ivan doesn't have the car for the weekend, so he's coming with you to go to the hotel and to come back to the circuit here in the morning. Okay? Okay. Then I shared the car with Martin. He was uh, driving, I remember very well, uh, Jaguar XJS Coupe because he was uh, already silk-cut uh, drivers for the Tom Walking Show Racing for the sports car. And I remember that when we arrived at the hotel, Martin said to me, look, Ivan, tomorrow morning, 7.15, I'm leaving the hotel. If you're not here in the, in the reception at that time, I'm going. So next morning, 7 o'clock, I was ready with my bag <laughs> at the reception, and everybody was actually <laughs> passing through. I said, what are you doing? I'm waiting. And what are you doing? I'm waiting. And then suddenly Martin came, said, okay, let's go. And then remember that Martin was actually driving the car with his wife, obviously, in the front. And it was like a, the son of the two at the back waiting to go to the, to the circuit to race. And I made my debut in Formula One in Brandsach with the turbo engine on Thursday because being the European Grand Prix, we, didn't, we had two hours add to the normal uh, test or normal weekend, let's say. Uh, and I had the, time, the chance to test the car for the first time in the middle of everybody else. I mean, I was just you know, pushed inside the circuit and said, this is the car, this is the circuit, go and learn. Were you intimidated by it? How nervous were you about the whole thing or did you just take it in your stride? No, no, I was really nervous. Uh, the night before I couldn't sleep uh, uh, and I realized uh, how difficult was to drive that kind of, uh, of car because, as I said, uh, I, didn't, I didn't test the car before. So I, I discovered everything uh, during the weekend, uh, uh, how to manage the turbo, how to manage the qualifying, the qualifying tires, uh, how to manage all the, uh, the difficult uh, moment. And I remember very well that uh, uh, in qualifying, I stopped uh, Keke Rosberg, Willie Williams, and KK, he overtook me. He was actually, you know, shouting to me and, and do thing, funny things with the hands and so on. And I said to him, look, I couldn't, I, I couldn't see you. I mean, and then he was he put this car in front of my tyrrell and then he braked. And so I actually touched him in, 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 in the back of the car and I, and I ruined my, my front wing. And when I came to the box, uh, Mr. Tyrrell saw me with the wing Damage? I say, what happened? I say, you know, uh, I stopped KK and KK break me uh, in front of me. And then uh, I'm sorry, but uh, I crashed. So then at the end of the, the practice, he said to me, come with me, Mr. Tyrrell. And I said, but where we are going? Uh, we are going to visit uh, a friend. And I realized, I realized immediately that we were going to, uh, to KK. And when we went to KK, he said to Keke, look, this is a rookie. You cannot do this in, uh, for, for Ivan because Ivan has here to learn and so on. And I realized that Keke 
at the beginning, he was uh, starting not to fight, but to, you know, to say that he was a, in, in, in the right uh, in doing this. And after a minute, he changed completely his, uh, his attitude. And he was more intimidated, intimidated than me, probably, <laughs> of, uh, of Mr. Tyrrell. What an incredible story. An incredible man, Ken Tyrrell. He was known as Uncle Ken, the avuncular Ken Tyrrell. So I don't know how much time do you have, but I have another story. with. Keep you. going. Keep going with Ken. Yeah. Tell me more. During practice, in qualifying, not even actually in free practice, I was using qualifying tires. And uh, for the last corner of, of Bransach, obviously, I... Uh, I use uh, too much power, and uh, in that corner, I had a spin. But spinning in that corner means that you, you are, uh, you know, uh, looping like a, like a bull, and I did uh, at least uh, five or six laps, not touching the wall on the right or, or left side, luckily. And then uh, I found myself on the right direction, and I did a lap with the tires that they didn't have a flat spot. But actually, the, the, the rubber came out. So my car was actually really unbalanced and going back. Right down to the carcass of the tire. Yeah. yeah. So I, then, I went back to the pit lane, to my, my position. And when I arrived in the pit lane uh, area, I realized that uh, no mechanics were ready to, to help me. But just Ken Tyrrell in, in, in the middle of my position where I had to stop the car, waiting for me like this, standing up, okay? So I stopped the car and I was just looking at him, very intimidated, yes? And he said to me, or actually point the finger, he said, you, out of the car. So I unbuckled the, the belts, then uh, I went out of the car. And he said, he said helmet, out. So I put the helmet out, balaclava, earplugs, and I was really, I was ready to receive uh, a slap in my face. Really. And, they, and then we, we, he was very, very calm. And he said to me, Ivan, what happened? Well, Mr. Tiddler, it's safe to say that probably I came out to the corner with a lot of uh, extra power and I couldn't manage it. Okay. So you understand the mistake that you've done and how serious you could have uh, destroyed the car or, or actually having problem? Uh, yes. And, but in the meantime, the session was going. I, the other cars were running in the, or lapping in the, in the circuit. So the sound, the engine, I was uh, in this kind of condition. Say, okay, now put the helmets back, back in the car and go out. It's just at that time the mechanics join the car and start to work. Wow, what a powerful character! Yes, and and, and you re you remember it all vividly. I can see that. Also, the Brands Hatch Grand Prix circuit, one of the best in the world, isn't it? Very tough, very difficult, really dangerous as well. Obviously, for for the for the speed in some corners, but uh, as usual. As we say, usually say, a real track, a, real, a track for men. And what did Ken Tyrrell say to you when you finished in the points at the very next race? <laughs> I had a problem during the race uh, because my 
carbon seat was broken. So I started to bend my back to the race. And it was uh, when uh, I, I finished the race, I was really, really, really in a critical condition for my back. And when I stopped in the area where everybody stopped, funny to say that it was Keke who, came, who won the race that came trying to help me to get out of the car. And then uh, I realized that I couldn't move because my back was really uh, painful. Uh, my muscles was, uh, I don't know how to say in English, I mean... Spasming, I, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, very sore. Then a physiotherapist from uh, the medical center came and he helped me really to get out of the car because as soon as was, I was out, even out I was, uh, of the car, I was uh, getting back in the same position as I was sitting in the car obviously laying down on the floor, but just to let you understand how was critical my, my situation, because for the half of the race, I have to, to keep the body on the steering wheel, either in the acceleration or in the braking area, because the, the seat was moving for half of the race. So how can you imagine how was uh, difficult? And this was the first Adelaide Grand Prix. So was it a very bumpy track back then as well? Big curbs. Very bumpy, very... Uh, I, I was lucky that obviously uh, a lot of failure had uh, all the other drivers and I, I was able to finish in the points because I was very, very close to, to retire for the painful that, uh, back that I had during the race. And then when I, when I saw there was a seventh and then sixth and then fifth, and I said, look, I cannot stop now. So I was, you know, pushing without thinking of or the pain and so on. Then I spent nearly two hours in the medical center with this physio starting to, to help me, starting to give me the possibility to move again, basically, because I was completely stuck at the back. And then I remember very well that Mr. Tyrrell arrived with two beers, two Foster's beers. <laughs> he entered into the, the medical center and he said, oh, how are you, Ivan? I said, Mr. Tiller, you can see that I, I cannot even move. I can't, I can't move. move. I mean, uh, it's a very critical situation. Oh, okay, okay, but uh, you are young. Uh, you, you, you will be perfect in, uh, in a few days. By the way, the mechanics are really proud uh, uh, of your race. Uh, and these are two beers for you from the mechanics. So he stayed there for, I don't know, maybe... 10 minutes, and then he went. And he, 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 he literally, he, he, he left me there alone, completely alone. And I joined the team probably seven o'clock in the evening, something like that. Still with the overalls, you know, and with my helmets, uh, not even able to walk. I was like a, a sort of robot because I was uh, all stiff at the back. And the mechanic, were, they were packing all the stuff and so on. Obviously, they were cheering up about because of the, the performance and the results that we had. And then, luckily, an Australian, an Australian guy that was helping us during the weekend, funny to say, but his name was uh, Tyrrell, uh, he gave me a lift to the hotel. And when I arrived to the hotel, again, for a funny reason, I remember very well that we were at the Hilton Hotel at the time, and I was uh, 
entering into the Hilton Hotel, and Mr. Tyrrell with uh, his wife, they were exiting from the hotel, <laughs> going to going to, to dinner. <laughs> and can, and Mr. Tyrrell said to me, so, Ivan, how are you? I said, Mr. Tyrrell, you see, I'm just arriving. I mean, <laughs> I'm still with the overall. <laughs> and I mean, was, uh, this was my, my story. How fantastic. What an experience. Your first two Grand Prix in Formula One. Was there ever an opportunity to race for Tyrrell in 1986 or was that never discussed? No, it was discussed. It was discussed because during the winter we had a lot of discussions. But uh, unfortunately, in uh, 85, it gave me the opportunity to race uh, in uh, Bransach and uh, Australia without sponsor, without the support of a sponsor from my side. In 86, uh, it was uh, asking me money. And uh, in 86, I was not uh, ready to collect all this amount of money to raise. Which, of course, sort of takes us back to what we were talking about and, and the influence that Akira Akagi had on you. He was the guy that made it happen with the money, with, with Leighton House. Yeah, Akira was uh, the person who gave me the opportunity to race in Formula One uh, from 87 to 91. We had... Uh, a very strong uh, relationship. And even the decision of entering Formula One was a very special situation because uh, we had a dinner at the airport at the end of uh, 1986. And Akira was, uh, I remember very well that Akira was offering me to race in Japan in 87 in Formula Two, nearly uh, $200,000 with everything else paid by Leighton House, apartment, car, uh, food. And I say to him, uh, and Cesare was, you know, pushing me, yeah, accept, accept, accept. And I say to him, look, uh, you know, Mr. Karig, but uh, I'm ready to race in Formula One. I would like to compete in Formula One. And he said to me, well, okay, but uh, who, who you are talking to? I mean, do you have any team that is uh, interested in you? And as they start to say funny names like Rosella, Tyrrell, uh, the only one that they could actually really approach because Cesare was looking at me, you know, with two eyes, big eyes, saying, but what are you saying? I mean, collect these 200,000 and, 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 be, and be happy, you know? And then uh, Mr. Akagi said, no, 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 let's, let's go on, let's, let's talk. And then we start to, to split the car as usual, front wings, rear wings, the side posts and this and that. How could uh, cost this uh, sort of uh, spezzatino? <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then suddenly, Mr. Akagi said to me, okay, you want to keep competing in Formula One. How much does it cost a car for you? The total car just for you. And then I turned to Cesare and I said, Cesare, now it's your turn because I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I finished my, my idea. And then Cesare said, uh, a car for event, Cosmore engine, uh, tires, $4 million. And uh, Akagi said, okay, $4 million. Are you sure that you can compete in Formula One? Are you ready? And he said, yes, Mr. Akagi, Mr. Akagi, I'm ready. I'm ready. And then he gave me the hands. We shake hands and he said, okay, we are in Formula One. You have $4 million to spend. Then <laughs> we <laughs> flew from Japan to Italy with Cesare. And every five minutes, you know, we were asking us if, if it was real or not. I remember very well that uh, Cesare 
when we landed in Milan, after one day, it took another plane to go to the UK. And then he knocked at the door of uh, Robin Hurd, a good friend of uh, Cesare. I remember that Cesare told me that when Robin opened the door, he said, ah, Cesare, how are you? I said, I'm fine. Uh, would you like to come back in Formula One? And Robin said, what, what do you mean? You have the car. I have the money. Let's go back in Formula One. And then they start to talk. And for this reason, March came back in 1987. Because Cesare and Robin shares a night together with probably a bottle of, uh, of red wine. And finally, they decide to go back in Formula One. And at the first race in Japan Pagua in Brazil, with a Formula 3000 modified because we didn't have the time. So they cut the tank of the Formula 3000 to increase the capacity. We went to Japan Pagua and remember that the total team, including myself, my father, Cesare Gariboldi, Akira Kagi, his girlfriend, Minoru Yasukawa, Armin uh, Mader, who gave us the engine and so on, and the mechanic, we were 17, 17 people. And were you confident that Akagi-san was going to deliver the money? Did you have any doubts in the back of your mind? I had no doubts of that, about that, but after... Actually, I shake the hands of Mr. Akagi at the last race that was probably in October, if I remember well. Then we had November and December to prepare everything. But after a few weeks after my last meeting with uh, Mr. Akagi in Japan, he had uh, an heart attack. Basically, he had to go to the hospital. <laughs> and it was uh, impossible to get in touch with him. And we start to add uh, a lot of pressure from England, obviously. Because uh, Robin Hurd was phoning to Cesare. Uh, Cesare was answering, you know, just we have to wait because Mr. Akagi is not well. But, you know, then we went uh, through November and December with these phone calls that were putting us a, a lot of pressure. Luckily, we didn't have the, the mobile phone because, <laughs> because otherwise it was a, could have been a real nightmare. But uh, at the end, in, uh, nearly in December, at the end of December, uh, we received uh, calls from uh, England with some lawyers saying, you know, if you are not signing a contract, we are going to sue you because we have the car ready and so on. And, and I remember that when Mr. Akagi, uh, luckily, he exited from uh, the hospital, that everything was fine because he had an operation with a bypass and so on, the first thing that he asked to the management a team in, in Japan said, uh, he asked, uh, have you signed a contract with the van? And everybody said, no, look, look we, we are just waiting. So uh, immediately he called us, immediately he called uh, Robin Hurd and, and the lawyers, and we flew to uh, Japan after Christmas, and we spent there three, four days before the last uh, day of the year. In that moment, we signed the contract for $4 million for the 1987 season. And we start like that. Incredible. 93 Grand Prix later, et cetera, et cetera. We haven't even discussed Ferrari yet. Beep, 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 beep. I cannot understand you. I'm sorry, sorry. I can't. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> the line's gone down. Sorry. <laughs> 
because it was going so well, wasn't it? Uh, oh, yeah. Until the end of until the end of ninety one, and then you get the call. Can you just tell us how did the Ferrari drive come about? Obviously, they had the problem with the uh, Alan Prost. Then Morbidelli did the the last race in in, uh, in Adelaide. I must say that uh, Leighton House had already some problems in ninety one, and uh, I was uh, looking for a, for a drive in another team. I was able to achieve uh, a deal with uh, Scuderia Italia. And Scuderia Italia using, uh, at the time, Dallara chassis and a Ferrari engine, also for the 1992 season. And uh, I had already a contract, basically, signed. Then I received a phone call from Mr. Lombardi. He was uh, the chief of the Gestione Sportiva at the end of 1991. And he said to me, look, Mr. Capelli, would you like to race for us? And I said to Mr. Lombardi, but I have already a contract with the, the Lara and, and Scuderia Italia. Ah, don't worry, don't worry. It's something that we can manage uh, to sort out. Uh, basically, they, they exchanged the contract with uh, some uh, free engines for the 1992, something like that, if I remember well. And obviously, I say yes, because for uh, an Italian driver to become a Ferrari driver, uh, it's, it's the dream of the life. You say, obviously, you said yes. Did you have any reservations at all? Obviously, because I couldn't, basically, I, I didn't have the chance to see the project. I didn't have the chance to talk about strategy and so They just uh, said to me on the phone, would you like to come to join us or not? All the other stuff is not a problem. We can manage to sort out uh, your relationship with Alara and there will be no problem with the Scuderia Italia, uh, and so on. And I'm guessing the contract was financially good as well. Good as well, with a four years contract. It was obviously finally a situation that was, uh, as we said, uh, probably I was hoping to have uh, in, in 1990, basically, with a top team and with a uh, long view for regarding the projects and, and, and the relationship. So then I joined the team. It was uh, extraordinary to, to become a, a Ferrari driver for an Italian. It's a dream that is coming through, obviously. My life changed completely. I couldn't go to the same restaurants that I was using before because uh, they were putting me in a, in a, in a sort of uh, embarrassing situation because before I was queuing, as everybody else in Milan, for example, you know, I was going to the pizzeria with my friends, no? And when, when I became a Ferrari driver, I was going to the same pizzeria and uh, they was pushing me to, to jump in the queue because uh, I was a Ferrari driver. It's just small things, but uh, showing that uh, from that moment, uh, you are not anymore a Formula One driver. You are a Ferrari driver. It's different. And were you living in Milan at the time? No, I was already living in Monaco okay. since a few years in Monte Carlo. Okay, the contract was good. Yes, <laughs> the weather, the weather was good. Yes, that's why you went there, of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How was your signing with Ferrari received in the Italian media? The expectations were very high because uh, I was coming through a career where I was able to win. Uh, uh, the Italian Championship in Formula 3, the European Championship in Formula 3, the Monaco race in Formula 3, the Formula 3000. 
some good races, obviously, as we said, with Leighton House, good points, good podium. So I had also probably the right age to be involved in, in such a strong team because uh, I was uh, uh, 30, 30 years is old. For, for a, a sportsman, it's probably the, the, the best best age because you have uh, the experience, you have the knowledge, you have uh, everything. I was not ready to find a situation so political. How did that manifest itself on a day-to-day basis, the politics? Politics were, were uh, understandable immediately when uh, I realized that uh, we had a two separate teams. Jean was working with uh, Mijot, postal wife. They worked together already in, in the Tyrol team a few years before. Of course, Harvey Pottersweet and yeah. yeah. So they were they were already they managed they 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 knew each other since a few years. Then I arrived and I signed the contract in uh, October at the end of October, November. And then at the end of November, or early in December, President Montezemolo became part of the Ferrari team as a president of business. So I was in the sort of a middle area of nobody because the old president of management were not there. The new management that came with, the, and especially Avvocato Montezemolo, uh, he, I was not his choice. He found me there already. And in 1992, when we t- tested the car for the first time in, in Estoril, I realized that the car was uh, not able to compete against the Williams or against other cars because it was uh, real difficult to drive that car because we didn't have the ground, the, 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 the ground effect that the, the double bottom, flat bottom supposed to produce or the front rockers with the monoshock was uh, completely stiff. I mean, not helping the, the bumps, uh, to avoid the bumps and so on. You tested the 91 car, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. But I had always uh, 150 litres of fuel inside the car in Estoril. When you tested the 91 car? Because I was going to say, where, where was the 92 car worse than the 91 car? Before the launch of the new car, we went to Barcelona to have a winter test and to share the winter test with other teams. And we were using the 91 car. And I remember that in that test, with that 91 car, I was able to go quicker than the lap record of the circuit. I remember very well the Autosprint cover page of of the magazine and said... Capelli Ferrari, urlo nel silenzio, shouting in the silence, because without spectator, without the atmosphere of the, of the Grand Prix, we were able to do a lap record with the 91 car. Then, that was obviously much quicker than my later now. <laughs> I was able to, to increase my performance because uh, I was using the car uh, at the top. Then, when we went to Estoril, Jean was using the 92 car and I was using the 91 car. But for internal rules of the, of the team, the car, my car, had to always exit the pit lane with at least 130, 150 liters of fuel, not to be quicker than the 92. Plus, 
when Jean tested the car, he said that the car was fabulous. We could win races and, uh, and so on. When I test the car, I say, look, there is the William that is one second and a half quicker than us because they are using the, the active suspension, the control suspension. So I say, look, how, how we can manage to, to, to compete against them? And obviously, the Ferrari management was uh, more attracted by listening Jean saying that the car could win races instead of one that just arrived saying, oh, this car had a, have a problem, have a serious problem. So I was immediately put on, on a, on a, put in on a corner. And, and for this reason, it was uh, in, nearly impossible to work. Then we have also to, to remember, but no one actually is, is remembering this because it's a detail, but it's a very important detail. The car was uh, designed to use the transversal gearbox. For the first seven races, I used the longitudinal because in the Ferrari team, we didn't have uh, four gearbox working properly, just two. And the two gearbox were used by Jean, and I had uh, basically the 91 car part back of the car attached to the 92 with a different diffuser, different cover engine, blah, 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 blah. Impossible. Yeah, and when I put in Imola the car doing probably my best lap of my career because when I exit the cockpit of the car, I could uh, feel the adrenaline on my lips, you know? Doing my best lap, I put the car on the same line of uh, Jean. We were six and seven or seven and eight, something like this. When I participated to the engineers' meeting, I remember very well that they were not accepting or understanding that I did a huge effort to put that kind of car side by side with Jean. But it was Jean that unfortunately was not able to go at least half a second or even half a second quicker than my car. Everything was sided with Jean. And did you ever confront Jean about what he'd said about the 92 car and being so positive about it when it, it sounds like there wasn't much to be positive about? Probably Jean was more, um, more experienced in comparison to me regarding the Ferrari team because he actually had already two years with Alan Prost uh, and he had the opportunity to understand the situation. Uh, and as I say, there was coming from... Uh, a Leighton House atmosphere where I was uh, basically sharing everything with the Morris Googleman. We were from, from the breakfast to the morning, in the morning to the dinner in the evening, we were sharing everything, all the information, or all the moment in Formula One. Ferrari had the first time, the, the, I realized for the first time that uh, racing for a top team was uh, a different story, or, or especially in Ferrari, because uh, I had just... Uh, uh, experience with the English team before. Were there any high points? I mean, you finished fifth in the third race in Brazil. Did you believe at that point that you could salvage something from the season or we even from the beginning you were thinking this isn't going to be good? Obviously, when you're a part of a project, uh, you are pushing every day, every weekend, every test, uh, despite the fact that uh, we were testing Everything, even I remember in Silverstone closing the double flat bottom with a new uh, side post and trying to understand if the car could work in that configuration and so on. 
but uh, uh, we didn't have anything that could help us at least uh, to do uh, an acceptable uh, result during the season because uh, the, the the suspension were especially the front the front, the one in front the monoshock couldn't work the aero with the double fed bottom couldn't work uh, the engine had a problem with a blue buy for the oil and uh, we have to reduce the revs during the year i remember very well in in mexico that uh, in, on friday and saturday all together with all the practice that we had uh, i could do maybe 10 laps for 14 laps because uh, as soon as i was going out after three laps or four laps in the long corner before the straight line boof, then they changed the engine then three laps boof, another one and i remember that they qualified the 21st i was side by side with the uh, bendlinger with the Leighton house we were side by side how, how can you find yourself or put yourself in a good mood when you when you are in that position that horrible crash in Montreal as well. I was looking at some YouTube footage of it. Did your helmet actually hit the wall? Yeah. Crikey. By the time I was stronger than the wall at the time. <laughs> <laughs> horrible, horrible crash. There's another story behind that. We had already a problem in qualifying because the mechanics made a, a mistake, but everybody can make a mistake. So we had a, in the front suspension, the Belleville some special tools that uh, are used, were used actually to manage the rolling of the rocker, front rocker. Basically, the mechanic, they put the, this Belleville in, in, in the wrong position. So I had, uh, I had uh, two pins in qualifying with the new tires. It was really embarrassing because in the same corner, at the same time, with the same kind of... Uh, Dynamic. I had uh, this two spin, and then I remember very well that the chief mechanic thing came to me after qualifying because I was uh, astonished by that because uh, it looked like that I was a, so, a very stupid driver basically. And he said to me, "Look, there is a, a we made a mistake. I can say to you clearly that we made a mistake, but please do not say anything to the press because our situation is already is a stressful situation because we are under pressure." everybody so please don't say anything and again because uh, in my entire life when i was part of a team i was thinking to be really part of something as a family i didn't say this news to the press then unfortunately during the race the right uprights of the suspension collapse in that corner and so when i turned the car went straight completely straight into the barrier Straight into the barrier, and again, the mechanic could find out could found out this after the the, the, the race, and, and and again because of the situation, because of the stress that and the media they were putting pressure on us and so on, they didn't say anything, and, and basically it looked like that uh, it was my mistake. You're a great team player. There's no doubt about that. But when we got to Montreal at that point of the season, even though you had a four-year deal with Ferrari, yes, were you starting to think this isn't going to end well? Uh, no, not really. Because, um, uh, as I said, uh, I was uh, still part of a team, I mean, of a family. I was considering myself... Uh, everything changed after Estoril, 
when uh, I couldn't finish the race because uh, we had uh, a serious problem on the brake system and I spun in the third corner. I went into the gravel and I had to stop. I came back to, to Milan on Monday and then I received uh, around uh, 11 o'clock, something like that in the morning, I received a phone call from uh, the secretary of uh, Presidente Montezemolo and uh, she said to me, look, uh, Presidente Montezemolo would like to see you immediately. I said, okay, let me, I'm, I'm, I'm in Milan, I'm, I have to do some, some things for my personal stuff and so on. No, 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 you have to take the car immediately and come here. Okay, so I, I organized myself, I took the car and I went to, to Modena. When I arrived at the uh, Gestione Sportiva, I supposed to go to Presidente Montezemolo because I was called by the secretary of Montezemolo. And then I found uh, uh, Mr. Ghedini and uh, the press office. And uh, they said to me, look, can you come with us in Gestione Sportiva? And he said, no, but I have to go to Montezemolo. I said, no, 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 no. First, we have to go to Gestione Sportiva. Okay, let's go to Gestione Sportiva. So we went, we went into Gestione Sportiva and I was brought in, a, in an office where Postal Wife, that at the, time, at the time was already in charge of Gestione Sportiva because during the year, uh, they made a change from Lombardi to Postal Wife, who became the chief of the Gestione Sportiva. And uh, Harvey was there with a white paper upside down so with the paper, sorry, upside down, I was just looking at the, uh, at the white, white uh, face. And he said to me, look, Ivan, you have to take a decision, uh, a set decision, but uh, uh, it's the only way to inform you is like that and so on. I say, well, what's, what's going on? Uh, unfortunately, we decided you're not going to participate in the last two races. They say, why? Sorry, I have a contract. I mean, I have... Uh, uh, no, but you know, we have to test some uh, new stuff for the 93 season. Uh, uh, we are preparing the active suspension for the new year and so on. And then, uh, so uh, we think that uh, somebody else is going to drive the, the, the car. This is it. There, there is no uh, other decision. No discussion. No discussion. This is it. I said, ah, okay. And then you turn the paper and then this is the press release. And obviously, the president is saying the, he was saying the, the, the obvious things. Uh, I did just I asked just one thing, and I said, "Look, can I can I make a, a phone call?" I said, "Yes, why not?" So I went to another office, and I called my father because Cesare was already passed away in 1990. And then I said to my father, "Look, the situation is this one: there are no discussion, no no, no chance to change the situation. These are the facts." And my father said, Ivan, you're not losing anything. Come, come home. <laughs> I went through the Gestione Sportiva. I said bye-bye to a few guys. I collect my stuff. And then when I came back to the car, I remember very well that uh, Mr. Gadini or the, the press office, uh, that I don't remember the name, but uh, anyway, said to me, look, okay, now... Uh, you, we can go to, to meet uh, the president, Avvocato Montezemolo. And I said, uh, okay, now to go to meet Montezemolo and to talk to him, you can go alone. I'm going home. And then I went home. So you never said goodbye to Montezemolo. He never said goodbye to you. 
No, no, because uh, as I said, uh, with the with the experience that I had, uh, I was expecting to have this information directly from him. I could accept the situation as well as it happened with the with postal what and so on. But uh, at least for uh, let's say a sort of uh, respect in 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 the work that they did in that. Uh, that year, I was expecting at least to have uh, this information directly from the president and not from somebody else. So when I was told, okay, now let's, we can go to Montezemolo, and I said, no, no, I'm going home. How much did that year with Ferrari affect you psychologically? A lot, because even when I joined Jordan, uh, where I have to collect the money that I didn't have, uh, I had to put uh, some family man- money to pay to race after 93 Grand Prix, it was uh, really uh, a very critical, critical situation. Also because uh, Jordan was uh, another tough guy. I mean, not, not an, an Eddie is a very tough guy. I mean, he could achieve to become a Formula One team manager and to have a team and so on. And all these people, they could join that, not because uh, they are friendly, but they want some, they want everything from you. And sometimes money. And if you remember in 1992, the Jordan car, except Barrichello, that did the whole season, but the Jordan car was, uh, the second one, was a sort of a Formula One rental car. It was like five different drivers in that second car. Yeah, five different drivers, Naspetti, Thierry Butzen. Uh, in 93, yeah. Do you think life at Ferrari is harder for an Italian driver? It's harder for an Italian because you are Italian. And it's harder, or it was harder, for somebody who could talk Italian. Because uh, after my experience, uh, I became a Formula One commentator. I did uh, 20 years with the the Italian TV. And I had the opportunity to see Michael Schumacher, Eddie Irvine, actually competing with Ferrari. And I was really... Not shocked, but uh, astonished by how Irvine was uh, managing his relationship with the team. He didn't probably read the Gazzetta every day uh, because uh, the Gazzetta dello Sport, sometimes with the journalists, they were putting a lot of pressure on him. And uh, Irvine was just, you know, doing up with the shoulders and, 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 and continuing. And is that the right way to be, to survive? To survive, yes. Absolutely, yes. In fact, I think that for the two guys at the moment in Formula One, for Sainz, Carlos, and, and, and for Leclerc, today, the fact that they are, both of them are talking Italian, obviously, is making everything more easy because you can talk to the engineers and so on. But in terms of relationship with the, with the media, you have to be very, very careful. Yes. You mentioned Ferrari now. They're having a good season two consecutive poles for uh, Charles Leclerc in Monaco and, and then in Baku. Do you think Ferrari's upward trajectory is here to stay? Do you think they can compete to win going forward? No, I don't think that this year they can really compete for the championship. They can compete maybe for a, a win in a race where situation can be helpful like a safety car or a rain condition or something like that. But to, to be consistently at the front, no. Because uh, as you know in Formula 1, especially now, you are not performing what you are, you are doing now, but you are performing what actually you managed 
to put together uh, six months ago, seven months ago, everything is uh, late, let's say, in terms of... Uh, and they, they have uh, five tenths, six tenths, uh, some races, even one second per lap during the race. And that is still a, a huge road that you have to do in order to, to be really competitive. The big chance comes with the rule changes next year, doesn't it? Yes. When you have uh, this kind of uh, new rules, uh, basically everybody can have the chance to become, at least for the first season, an underdog. Like in, like in 1988 for Leighton House. <laughs> exactly. You love the underdog, don't you? Um, do you think Ferrari has the foundation to build a good car for 2022? Uh, at the moment in Formula One, uh, uh, as we said uh, a few times during this uh, uh, interview, you have a, a lot of engineers, a lot of people that uh, technology is, is huge now. You can use uh, a lot of tools, uh, simulator, computers. Uh, I don't know how, how much they, they, they can really use. But at the end of the day, you need someone like Adrian Newey, who has, who has the, the complete picture and has the, the idea and the road where you have to go. I cannot see in other teams, there are exceptional engineers, but probably no one that has this kind of experience like him, that has this full, full image, full picture of the project. And Ferrari probably like other teams, is missing this. I mean, they, they, they are not able to, to put everything together, even if they have the tools. You think Red Bull is the place to be? Red Bull has another big challenge because uh, we know that next year they are going to produce uh, themselves the engine. I have no doubt that uh, Honda will uh, give uh, all the technology and because probably Red Bull will pay a lot of money to have this kind of technology. <laughs> so... Next year, the challenge for Red Bull, because they show already that they have the performance, is to be able to continue to have the same kind of, uh, let's say, relationship between chassis constructor and engine constructor, to have the same kind of mixture. Because now you have two entities, English team and Japanese, that work together. But next year, there will be English team maybe some Japanese, but some English as well. The problem will be to manage these two things together. Well, Ivan, it's been a wonderful chat. Thank you so much for your time. Can you just sum up your racing career for me? How proud are you? And do you have any regrets? The only regret that I have is that probably in go-kart, I was not able to really win something important not just at the first year where, where I won the Italian championship of the Cadetti in 1978, but uh, in some uh, international races. I was uh, second in the European championship uh, uh, for team, so sharing the, the, basically the race with other people. But in the, in the top, uh, let's say, top races in, in kart, uh, I really missed the performance. I was not even in the rostrum. Then in Formula 3, when I jumped in Formula 3 in Italy, I had the opportunity to win the Italian Championship, the European, the Monte Carlo race, so, and the Formula 3000. So it was really, I, mean, I, I must say I, I say, I have to say that uh, I'm really happy about my, my career. Maybe 
uh, I missed the chance to use my experience in the, in the long distance race, like uh, Le Mans or other race, races that are similar. What about Formula One? Any regrets in Formula One? I just can say that uh, when I joined 1992, the team in 1992, really we had a, a very bad, probably the worst year of Ferrari in, in Formula One, comparable to, to the years before in the 70s. When I, jo- I joined uh, Jordan, at the Jordan team, I was already in a, in a sort of situation where I couldn't really manage to achieve the limit, to be relaxed and not to be, let's say, confused by all the pressure that I had for the money, for the story they had just the year before. Just one regret, yes, that uh, I was not able to decide myself when to stop. I wish I could have chosen to, to stop maybe in, I don't know, 94, 95, 96, but having the chance again to, to race and then to say, okay, I'm my age, is uh, now at the limit uh, or uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, satisfied and, and, and I can stop. To be stopped like that, in, uh, just receiving uh, again a phone call from Jordan saying, if you're not bringing me $1 million, you cannot race. Well, what you can do after 93 races? Nothing more. <laughs> well, Ivan, thank you so much for your time. Great to speak. Thank to you. Wasn't he great? I could have listened to Ivan for hours because he's not only a great storyteller, he remembers his F1 career like it was yesterday. The detail in some of his stories is incredible. There were too many wonderful stories to pick a favourite one, but how he got into Formula One on a permanent basis with the support of Akira Akagi, the boss of Leighton House, is a heartwarming one. And as Ivan says himself, it wasn't only Akagi-san to whom he owed his Formula One career. Ken Tyrrell was another godfatherly figure, and those two races that he drove for Mr. Tyrrell at the end of 1985 had so much colour to them. Catching the bus from Heathrow to Brands Hatch to make his Grand Prix debut, being brake tested by world champion Keke Rosberg, and being given a couple of beers by Uncle Ken after a very physical Australian Grand Prix. It was just wonderful. And although it's sad to hear Ivan talk about his season with Ferrari, how his time there unraveled provides great insight into how the Scuderia functioned back then. It wasn't a good time to be racing for the team. Ivan, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and I hope to see you at the Italian Grand Prix later this year. Before we move on, please remember to send in any stories or chance meetings or thoughts that you have on Ivan. Did you see him race? Well, let me know. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Jeff Gordon after last week's show. And you liked what you heard. Here are a handful of the messages you sent in. Dan Mahin got in touch with this. I met Jeff Gordon at the premiere of Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. He was very nice and went out of his way to spend time with several Make-A-Wish families that were there. A class act. Well, what a great story. Thanks, Dan. And nothing that you said there comes as a surprise. And how about this from Todd? If you're a Jeff Gordon fan, he says, or a racing fan in general, 
This podcast is a must-listen. An hour of fantastic insight on Jeff's fandom and his in-depth thoughts on Formula One and NASCAR. Great stuff. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Todd. Jeff was great, and I certainly found his passion for Formula One to be infectious. And let's hear from Zach Robinson. This is easily my favourite episode of Beyond the Grid yet, he says. My uncle graduated from high school with Jeff, and our town has a Jeff Gordon Boulevard. Safe to say, we've all been fans for life. I'm too young to remember the Williams test, but I love every second of the story. Great episode, as always. Thanks, Zach, for the note. Jeff certainly gave us plenty of detail about the Williams test. I hope you feel like you are watching it now. We'll leave it there, folks. Although we got literally hundreds of messages about that Jeff Gordon show, thanks for your feedback. And if I haven't read out your message, please know that I've read it. I read each and every one of your messages. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Ivan and remember to send in your thoughts and stories on him. As ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.